Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. So because we finished up equipping hour, I mean, excuse me, uh, 1 Corinthians last Sunday, um, we, I was kind of caught in the awkward position of having to think about what are we going to look at for one week here before this break. And um, I thought it would be appropriate to stay with Paul. <laughs> He's what we know. We're familiar with life and ministry with Paul. And so, um, and so I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're just going to look at three short verses in the middle of this letter. But I want to, by way of introduction, just to share with you a, we'll call it a modern day parable. There was a certain engineer who was given the task of inspecting and maintaining a a vast labyrinth of uh, utility lines that ran underneath the city in which he lived. And when he arrived at the location he needed to be at, the street, he blocked off the road. He, he backed up his truck, and he pulled out his equipment. The only thing left for him to do was to pry open this manhole cover to get below the street and to do his, to do his work to carry out his task. He grabbed his tool, began prying and, and lifting and uh, trying to get this thing off, but he quickly realized that this was going to be harder than he had anticipated. It was going to be more stubborn to get off than he had expected. And so he went back to his truck and he got a a larger tool and he began to exert with all his strength, lifting, prying, twisting, um, banging, whatever he could do to try and dislodge this metal disc. It just wouldn't move. And at this point, he became angry. He became uh, visibly angry, cursing at the manhole, mumbling about the utility company, He complained in his heart about how simple this job would be if these foolish manhole covers would just lift off like they're supposed to. In disgust, he sat down in defeat and was resigned that the job was basically an impossible one. And just as he was about to leave, just as he was about to get in his truck and drive on to the next spot he needed to go to, a light bulb went off and he stood up and with a, a look that was mixed with embarrassment and relief, He widened his stance, grabbed hold of this manhole cover with the tool that he had been using and was able to easily lift it off. You see, in all of his zeal and all of his haste and all of his frustration even, he failed to notice that his toes had actually been standing on the outer rim of this manhole cover, the very thing he was trying to pry open. And while he was demonizing this piece of steel and cursing the city and, and the whole deal he didn't realize that the problem had not been with any of those things, but with him all along. And um, when it comes to mutual ministry and spiritual friendships, we can be like that utility worker in the church. Instead of struggling to pry open a manhole cover, we can struggle to get to know others, to move below the surface of things, to enjoy meaningful fellowship with one another for the purpose of mutual care and edification, right? We've got everything lined up. You're in your church, you're committed, you've got your tools, you've got the road blocked off, so to speak. The only thing left to do is to open, pry open people's hearts and get to know them. But what should be a simple task can often become frustrating, can be a challenge. The people you interact with seem distant, they seem vague, they seem uh, guarded with the things that they share and what's happening in their hearts and lives. And so, no matter how, how hard you pull, no matter how much you work, it just can't seem to get them to open up, at least to you. 
And so after a while, you start to become um, angry. You start to become exasperated. You may even become disillusioned, the idea of, of uh, knowing other people. And, and you can start to even point the finger of blame at other brothers and sisters. It's their problem. The point of the parable is this. If people are closed off, if they're guarded, if they're vague and superficial with us when we come together and when we interact with them, the problem could very well be with us not with them. If we love God's people, we want to see the body of Christ built up in love, and, and we should want to do that, and I believe you do, then we are going to long for fellowship. We are going to long for fellowship with others in the church. We'll desire honest, open fellowship with this person or that person, this group of people, that group of people in the church with the ultimate goal of their spiritual growth and ours. And when that doesn't happen, it is easy to point the finger of blame and say, that person won't open up. This person isn't being receptive. You know, I can't get to know them. And over time, you can become discouraged. You can actually become disenchanted with the whole idea of caring for souls. And, and as that prolongs, you become disconnected from the church. But here's the thing, if we want to enjoy fellowship with the body of Christ, if we want others to be open with us and honest with us and transparent with us, it's not just something that we as believers can stand back and expect and demand from others. We have to initiate that ourselves. We have to initiate that ourselves. And like so many aspects of the Christian life, we have to model the maturity that we long to see in others. We individually have to set the pace by being open and being transparent and honest with others. And then once we have done that faithfully, once we have done that patiently for a long time, then we can stand back and graciously exhort others like Paul exhorts the Corinthians in our text this morning in chapter 6 and verse 13, open wide to us also. So my question to you is this, do you struggle with engaging others in the fellowship of the church? Has that been a challenge? Does it discourage and disillusion you when people in the body of Christ are more like a closed book than an open door? Is it hard for you, is it a challenge for you to establish and maintain spiritual friendships that build others up and allow you to be built up into Christ-likeness? If we're honest, we've all probably experienced that if we've been in the church for any length of time. And if that's true of you this morning, if that's characterized life and ministry for you in a church or in this church, I want you to be hopeful because God has left you and he's left me a powerful example in Paul. Paul is one of the scripture's most inspiring models when it comes to this matter of living, we'll call it living in the land of openness and transparency, particularly as we look at his relationship to the Corinthian church, which we have been studying for so many months Look at our text this morning, 2 Corinthians 6 and verse 11. Paul says to them, Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in like exchange, in a similar manner is what he's saying there, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Of course, we know 
much of the background of Paul's relationship to the Corinthian church, just having studied through it. But you'll remember at the end of chapter 16, he, he said, I'm going to send Timothy to you, and then eventually I'm going to stay on at Ephesus and eventually will come to you. Well, he did send Timothy, and the word that he got from Timothy was not encouraging. And so he broke off his plans in Ephesus and went back, Paul did, to Corinth afterwards to minister to them. And it was a very difficult visit. It was a painful visit. Chapter 2 says that he was confronted by others, and he was caused much sorrow. He was, he was, uh, they confronted him to his face. It was not a pleasant visit. And after he left, he wrote them a letter to confront issues and concerns that he had with his church. We don't have that letter. That's, it's referred to in chapter 7 as his painful letter. But all that has transpired since chapter 16. And he made a visit, and he followed up with a painful letter. And now he has gotten word back about what has taken place. In fact, he was so, ups- uh, so concerned about what was going to happen, he, he left that open door in Troas, and he went to find Titus to figure out what he had heard. And while he was relieved to find out that many in the church had turned back to Paul and, and had repented of their sin and their divisive behavior, he was, Paul was not ignorant of the fact that, that there were still adversaries in their midst. There was still, uh, you know, rumblings of discontent in the church. And so that's what prompts him to write Second Corinthians, to address these false apostles and leaders who were seeking to tear down Paul to exalt themselves and to gain an audience for their, for their wrong message. And so as they are speaking about Paul and, con- and speaking poorly of Paul and confronting uh, or, or calling out things in his life, many of those things were not true. Paul felt compelled to write back to them to defend his life and his ministry. And that is the letter that we know as 2 Corinthians. This was a church that he loved. We know that. He pastored the church. He, 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 he ended chapter 16. He says, my love is with you all. And that was a true statement. And he is not going to quit on them, even though they're being difficult with him. So 2 Corinthians chapter 6 marks more or less the midpoint of Paul's defense. This whole book, this whole letter is Paul defending himself and it takes a decidedly pastoral turn here in chapter 6, in which he exhorts them to open up their lives to him. And the reason Paul can say that, the reason Paul can say as he does in verse 13, you reciprocate, open up to us, is because he has already primed the well by leading with his affection, his openness, his transparency with them. And so what I want to do this morning is simply looking at these three verses, I want to map out, we'll call them four checkpoints to pass through, to live in this land of openness and transparency. We're going to look at Paul's example, and I'm going to give you four checkpoints, working through the text, to pass through, that we must pass through, to live in this land of openness and transparency. And the first comes to us in verse 11, and it is this, the first checkpoint we have to pass through to live in this land of openness and transparency with one another is this. You have to remember that you're also, you're also a participant in the process of sanctification. You're also a participant 
in the process of sanctification. He says, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart, our heart is opened wide. What did Paul mean when he said our mouth is spoken freely, our, our heart is open wide? What is, the, what is the point of that statement? The idea, of, of course, is one of candidness, is one of honesty. Paul's ministry to them was personal. It was effective because, because he was continually pulling back the curtain of his heart and letting them in to know him. So throughout 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Paul is transparent about his own weaknesses. He does not hide behind his own inadequacies. He is honest about that. And just looking at 1 Corinthians, since we've looked at that and studied that as a church, in chapter, one, uh, chapter 2, remember, he says, I came to you, brethren, in verse 1. I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. He says, I determined nothing to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I mean, that's about as honest as it gets. He says, I was not like your philosophers. I was not, I'm not like your, these men that, that stand in the square and are rhetorical, you know, rhetorically skilled. He says, I just preach Christ to you. And I did it in weakness, and I did it in, I did it in fear and trembling. Later on in chapter 9, in verse 26 and 27, Paul says to them, he says, uh, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. I discipline, I, I beat down my body and make it my slave, so that after I've preached, I myself will not be disqualified. He was understood that there was a real possibility that he could, he could disqualify himself by not living consistent with his message. He understood his own heart. Chapter 15 and verse 9, Paul, speaking of the grace of God in his life, says, I'm the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. See, he was not a man who considered himself important. Uh, later on in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, he calls himself the chief of sinners, as he wrote to Timothy. Paul was not delusional about his spiritual condition. He knew that he had not arrived. He knew that there was much more for him to do to be, my, to be like Christ. He understood he was, a, he was also in process, just like they were. He was not a spiritual mediator, if you will. He was not some third party appointed to bridge the gap between right, God and his people. That, was, that, that is the role of Christ and Christ alone. He is the one mediator between God and man. He was right there with his, with his fellow believers in the church in Corinth. Remember, years and years ago, there was this... Um, commercial on television for the hair club for men. You remember this? Some of you are a little older. A hair restoration thing. And the, the tagline at the end of the commercial, the guy, some guy with, with a full head of hair would say, I'm not only the hair club president, but I'm also a client. Right? He was right there in there. That was the, what's, the, what's the pitch? The pitch is, I'm just like you. And I benefited from this service. And Paul's saying, I'm just like you. 
We are, as Paul Tripp says in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand, people in need of change, helping people in need of change in the church. And so I just want you to stop and reflect Reflect on your own heart and your own life. Think about your life before Christ. Think about your actions. Think about your, the attitudes, the things that dominated your heart and life. Reflect then on the magnitude of God's grace toward you. And I want you to reflect on the struggles that we still have, you and I still have in our flesh. If that's, if that's hard to do, if that's a challenge, then without even thinking about it, you have begun to distance yourself from others in the church. If if you've lost that humble perspective, then you'll have a very difficult time enjoying openness and transparency and genuine fellowship with other believers in the church. So I just want to give you some diagnostic questions. You can kind of interrogate your heart to see if you've begun to lose sight of that humble perspective that Paul had this example that he was in process just like everyone else. Ask yourself this and just just answer in the quietness of your own heart. Whom do you think of when you hear a sermon? Do you immediately think of how this truth would apply to somebody else, this family member, this friend, this other person in the church, or do you think about how it applies to your own heart? Another question, how do you respond when someone asks you um, how, how they can pray for you? Are the typical responses uh, superficial, arm's-length things like improving circumstances or, or better health, which are not bad things to pray for but, but are kind of arm's-length? Or are you comfortable verbalizing needs that are substantial, needs that are personal, needs that are spiritual? Let me ask you this, a third question. Whom do you study the Bible for? Do you study the Scriptures to primarily fuel uh, up the tank for debate with other Christians or other unbelievers, or do you study them to know God and rightly know your own heart? I mean, the obvious answer is if we're walking in humility, we, we, we listen to sermons for ourselves. We, we, we are comfortable and, and in touch with our heart to be able to share those needs, real needs, with one another. We, we study the Bible to know Christ and to know, know ourselves rightly. Paul didn't lose that perspective. He was a fellow laborer. He was very much in process. In fact, he said that to the Philippian church. He says, I I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, he says, I forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us all, therefore, as many as are perfect, meaning those who have been made perfect in Christ, have this attitude. He says, and if anything, in anything you have a different attitude, God will make that clear to you. See, Paul never lost that perspective, and we cannot either. We cannot. So how can you cultivate an attitude, a spiritual humility that allows you to do this? Let me just give you some, I'm trying to make this as practical a sermon as possible. First, study the scripture for yourself first, not others. Study the scripture for your own heart first, not primarily to um, apply it to other people. Uh, Secondly, drilling down on that a little bit more, study God himself, right? Study God himself. Think about this, Genesis 1-1, the very first verse in the Bible, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
in that one statement, by good and necessary consequence, several life-altering truths can be deduced from that one verse. First, we know that God is one, not many, right? God is simple, not composite. In other words, he's not made of other things put together. He is who he is. God is eternal, not temporary. God is spirit and not matter. God is infinite, not finite. God is self-existent. He doesn't depend upon anyone else for life or anything. God is, has life in himself. He just is. Not, he doesn't derive his being from another self. God is immortal, not mortal. I mean, we get all that from one verse. To put it simply, the one true and living God is the transcendent creator. He is set apart. He is holy. He is glorious. And we are created. We are unholy. (laughs) And we have glory only insofar as we bask in the light of his glory being made in his image. So studying and meditating on the being of God, the attributes of God, the works of the triune God, that is, a, is, that is its own reward. To know God is its own reward. It is not a means to some better end, to enjoy him. So, so study God, study the scriptures, study God in himself. Thirdly, consider your calling. Consider your calling. Remind, I'm always having to remind myself that God didn't save me because he was so desperately in need having me on his team. He saved me because I was such a wretch, because I was such in desperate need of saving. That's what Paul says to the Corinthians. Consider your calling, brethren. There are not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. And God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He's chosen the base things of the world and the despised, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are. So that, and this is the reason, no man may boast before God. God saved you because you were so sad, and me too, because we were in such desperate need of saving. Consider not only your calling, but consider the struggles you already have, continue to have against the flesh. We are to boast not in our strength, but what? In our weakness. So, you know, those are ways that we can cultivate a spirit of humility, reminding ourselves who God is. You know, when we are in awe of God, we become small. And as we reflect upon our own hearts and know them truly, we are brought low. We are in this process of sanctification. Paul got it. Paul understood that. That's the first checkpoint in our list. The second checkpoint you and I must pass through if we're going to live in this land of openness and transparency is this. You have to recognize that your mouth can't say what your heart doesn't feel. Consistently, anyway. Your mouth can't say what your heart doesn't feel. Notice what he says there in verse 11 again. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. There's an important parallelism in that statement. The mouth speaks, the heart is open wide. 
It's, it's a synonymous parallelism. It expresses in a poetic manner this important biblical principle that our speech is the overflow of our hearts. Plain and simple. Jesus taught us this in Matthew 12 and verse 34, saying to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. James gets it. James understood this in his um, instruction about the tongue in chapter 3, in verses 8 to 12, he, he shows us that the root is what produces the fruit. The good root, good fruit, bad root, bad fruit. And then he says, does a, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree produce olives or a vine produce figs? Salt water produce fresh? The reality is that the mouth speaks out of what what's filled up in the what the heart is filled with and we get this we, in, instinctively if someone is consistently abrasive in their words we say what they're an abrasive person they're an angry person if someone is difficult and complains all the time we say they're 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 a complainer we make an informed and accurate judgment about their hearts from our from their words Um, Hans Christian Andersen has a little, little parable that I think is, illustrates this point. He says, once upon a time, there was a prince who wanted to marry a princess, but she would have to be a real princess. He traveled all over the world to find one, but nowhere could he get what he wanted. There were princesses enough, but it was difficult to find out whether they were real ones. There was always something about them that was not as it should be. So he came home again, this prince, and he was sad, for he would have liked very much to have a real princess. And one evening, a terrible storm came, and there was thunder and lightning, and the rain poured down, and suddenly a knocking was heard at the city gate, and the old king went to open it, and it was a princess standing out there in front of the gate. But goodness gracious, what a sight the rain and the wind had made her look. The water ran down from her hair and her clothes. It ran down into the toes of her shoes and out of her heels, and yet she said she was a real princess. Well, we'll soon find that out, thought the old queen. But she said nothing, went into the bedroom, took all the bedding off the bed frame, and laid a pea on the bottom. Then she took 20 mattresses and laid on them the pea, and then on top of that, on top of the pea, and then 20 goose-down beds on top of the mattresses. On this, the princess had to lie all night long, and in the morning she was asked how she slept. Oh, very badly, she said. I scarcely closed my eyes all night. Heaven only knows what was in the bed, but I was lying on something hard so that I am black and blue all over my body. It's horrible. Now they knew she was a real princess because she had felt the pee right through the 20 mattresses and the 20 goose-down beds. Nobody but a real princess could be as sensitive as that. The point of the story is simply this. The princess revealed her true identity by her what? Her words. It was her words that gave her away. And it's the same for us. Openness and transparency that Paul had with the Corinthians, it bled through constantly in his letters. It was the overflow of his heart. 
This is what he felt. His heart was always mindful of its own inadequacies. He realized he was a wretched sinner saved by the grace of God, pressed, and he pressed on toward that and understanding that that was, that was who he was. And it's the same for us. We cannot march, you and I cannot march day after day in pride and self-righteousness and self-assurance and think that our words are going to communicate humility, dependence upon God, an awareness of our weaknesses. It's just not going to happen. If we want to prime the well of people's hearts, if we want to initiate and model openness and transparency, if we're going to have genuine fellowship with our fellow pilgrims in the church, we must recognize that our mouths will only do that consistently if our hearts live in that space all the time. So the second checkpoint is that we must recognize that our mouth won't say what our heart doesn't feel. So the first two checkpoints have to do with us internally. The second two checkpoints that we're going to see, which are a little bit shorter, obviously, than these first two, is our have to deal with our interactions with others. With our hearts in the right place, now we can turn our attention to others. Paul says, our mouths have spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is open wide. He says, you are not restrained by us, but you are restrained or constricted in your own affections. See, Paul says, I have a right view of myself. My heart is in the right place, and I've spoken freely to you. In other words, Paul initiated, he's, he's confirming here in verse 12, that had the, the choke point in their relationship was not him, it was them. They, the result was not an external agent that was constricting his, their affections for him, their relationship with him, but their relationship was being constricted by their own failures. So Paul is saying, I constantly initiated opportunities to pull back the curtain, to throw open the double doors of my heart. And that is the third point in our outline. We must initiate opportunities to throw open the double doors of our hearts. How do we do that? Well, I think the, the best way, again, is to look to Paul. Just listen to how he, things that he does in this letter. We'll just trace through a few things, um, a few practices that are evident in the letter itself. How do you throw open the double doors of your heart? Well, first, share the circumstances of difficult events with others. Share the circumstances of difficult events with other people. If you remember back in chapter 1, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. See, Paul is wanting them to know. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact of what we went through. We don't know the circumstances of this trial. We don't know the details of it. He says, but it was so bad that we thought we were going to die. So he's throwing open the doors of his heart, sharing the, in, the difficulties and at least the general 
uh, circumstances that he experienced. And listen, we all have them. We all have work issues. We all have family conflict. We all have uh, struggles with employment at times in our lives, right? And those things, as we talk about them, sometimes they're not real pleasant. They're not, they don't paint us in a favorable light, but that's okay. That's okay. Like, we get it. We all have weird family members, right? We all do in our family. And sometimes we're the weird family member. So share, share those details with one another as you talk with each other in the context of fellowship. Secondly, share your thoughts and emotions through those difficult events. Share the thoughts of your mind and the emotions of your heart through those difficult events. This is a challenge for men more than women. Let's just be honest. Women tend to be more loquacious. But, but it's something we all have to do. And we see Paul doing that in chapter 2 and verse 4. Speaking of his visit, he says, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. He's just telling them how he felt. I came, it was hard, and then I had to write that letter, and it was even harder. Paul was transparent about his sorrow, his disappointment. So don't just share the circumstances of what's going on, but also go behind that and be willing to share what you're thinking, how you're feeling in those situations. Too often we think that everyone in the church is under this um, delusion that we're all super spiritual and we never feel sadness, we never have disappointment, and we're never struggling with fear and anxiety, and we, and we never, you know, are, are locked up in anger. Like, but that's just not reality. That's not life in, in this world for us, even as believers. And taking the lead and disclosing that to others welcomes people into that circle of friendship, of fellowship, and it builds trust and it helps build relationships. So Paul did it. Share the thoughts and emotions through those difficult events. Thirdly, share the ways in which God is exposing your weaknesses. Share the ways in which God is exposing your weaknesses. If you look further along in chapter 12, Paul describes the thorn in the flesh that he endured. And he says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And he says, concerning this, I implored the Lord, implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. He says, most gladly, therefore, I will boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. So he says, I am content with weakness and uh, with, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, and with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Again, this ties back to what we just said. Share how God is at work in your heart and life, particularly as it relates to spiritual weakness. These are struggles, conflict, is it weighs on the heart. Chronic illness weighs on the spirit. It's okay to share those things with others. 
Share how you're being confronted with pride, with laziness, with anger, with sadness. Ask people to pray for you in those things and be willing to share them. Fourth, regularly share how you're leaning on the hope of the gospel. Regularly share how you're leaning on the hope of the gospel. Paul reveals all these details of the struggles and the persecutions and the difficulties and the angst in his heart, but he also he also shares the hope that he has in Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Look at chapter 4 in verse 13. After he's gotten done talking about all the affliction he's felt, how death is at work in him, but life in them, he says, but I having believed, uh, having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sake, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. We do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Looking at the things which are seen, uh, not looking at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For those things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. See, it's not enough to just have a big pity party. We want to do that sometimes. We just want to wallow in self-pity. But we also need to turn and share how we are leaning in the hope of the gospel. What we are looking toward. How we are trying to kill a spirit of condemnation and defeat, trusting in the glory that is to come that is ours in Christ, how we're trusting in the promises of God. We need to share that too. So, so the way in which we throw open the doors of our heart involves sharing the difficulties of life, our thoughts and experiences through those difficulties, the weaknesses that are exposed in life's challenges, as well as our hope in Christ. And it all that may sound totally foreign to you this morning, but I want you to understand that it may be hard and require a lot of attention and intentionality in the beginning, but as you grow in Christ, hopefully this kind of communication will happen more naturally and begin to spill over into all the relationships you have, not just in the church, but in your home, with your spouse, with your family members, friends. We need to be actively and continually initiating those opportunities to throw open the doors of our hearts and remove those chains, those restraints. That's what the term means in verse 12. He says, you're not hemmed in by us. You're hemmed in by your own affections. Fourthly, and finally, after we've walked several miles with people, after we've remembered and recalled that we're in process, recognized our mouths aren't going to say what our heart doesn't feel, and after we've taken numerous opportunities to throw open the door of our hearts toward others, open, once we've done all of that, we have passed through all of those checkpoints, then, fourthly, we can challenge others for a return on our investment. Then we can challenge others for a return on our investment. Verse 13, Paul says, Now, in like exchange, he says, in a reciprocal manner, I speak as to children, open wide to us. Open wide to us. 
Paul's able to challenge them the way he does in verse 13 to reciprocate because of his example and his investment with them all these years. But without the example and without the investment, we'll have a very difficult time expecting people to open up. There's simply insufficient relational currency in the account. You can't draw it out. There's insufficient funds. As leaders, particularly, we have to do this and lead by example. It's not different for us than anyone else. We have to lead in this. And if you can check off one, two, and three, and those things consistently flavor your interactions with particular individuals in the church, then it, you can press people directly to open up. But we can't rush that process. We can't run into that too fast. If you've made those efforts and you're still not gaining the response that you want and people are still kind of closed off, then it might be worth asking others that you trust, people that can give you honest feedback. You can ask them, do you feel like I have been candid with you? Do you feel like you know me? Have I made those efforts and overtures? See what they say. You may find out that they say, not really. Or they might be, yeah, it might be, a, might be an encouragement. So you can solicit feedback, and, third, and secondly, you can pray that God would, as Paul did, uh, open up the hearts of those around you. Sometimes we just need to press on. So as we looked at these three simple little verses, there are four checkpoints that we must pass through to live in the land of openness and transparency. We need to recognize, remember that we're also in process. We need to recognize that our mouth isn't going to say consistently what our heart isn't truly believing and feeling. We must initiate those opportunities to throw open our hearts to others. And then, once we've done those things, we can challenge people to respond in kind. It's, uh, it's hard work. And sometimes you do all the right things in all the right ways and there's still no response. What then? To that, I would encourage you to hear the words of uh, Richard Baxter. He says, we must carry on our work with patience. We must bear with many abuses and injuries from those to whom we seek to do good. And when we have studied for them and prayed for them and exhorted them and pleaded with them with all earnestness and condescension, and given them what we are able, and tended to them as if they had been our children, we must look that many of them will repay us with scorn and hatred and contempt and account us as their enemies, perhaps. We must endure all this patiently, he says, and we must unwearily hold on in doing good. We have to deal with distracted men who will fly in the face of their physician, but we must not neglect their cure. He is unworthy to be a physician who will be driven away from a frenetic patient by foul words. Yet, alas, when sinners reproach and slander us for our love and are more ready to spit in our faces and to thank us for our advice, what heart risings will there be and how the remnants of the old Adam will struggle against the meekness and patience of the new man? And he says, and how sadly do many come off, meaning pull back, under such trials, end quote. These are true words. How many of us would want to jump ship rather than carry on the work of loving others with patience, getting to know them, opening up our hearts and lives to them? Listen, you open up your heart and life to people, it, we, you will get burned. 
you will not, it will not always be mountaintop experience. Sometimes you open up your life to people and they turn around and they use it against you. And they turn on you. And that's okay. And that's okay. We need to adopt the attitude that Paul had. As he says later on, at the end of the letter in chapter 12, in verse 10, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions and difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, he says, then I am strong. We need to be willing to go about this task of making and maturing disciples of Christ who run to win. And one of the ways we do that is by building up the body in an atmosphere of love that says, as Paul does in chapter 12 and verse 15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. Then, when we have that attitude and those actions, then we will truly live in the land of openness and transparency in the fellowship of his church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's example. Thank you for giving us such a, I mean, in many ways, the way Paul writes to these churches, these people whom he loves, is so unique, so distinct from any other correspondence you see by people, even in this time. Of, and it's so much, so candid, so honest. His, his concerns, his distress, his grief, his hurt, his hope, it's all laid out there for us. And uh, Father, we acknowledge that it's easy for us to, to hide behind a veneer of having everything kind of buttoned up and put together um, and to be very, very measured in the way in which we share our lives with others in the church. But Lord, this is not an atmosphere in which true ministry can take place. It's not an atmosphere in which true sanctification is accomplished. And genuine fellowship, a mutual indwelling and sharing of life together in Christ can only be possible as we open up our hearts and lives to you and to one another. Lord, would you work that in our church, even in greater measure, that we might enjoy that fellowship and that we might be strengthened and built up into the true knowledge of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this, visit us at cascadesbiblechurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.